Uh, last week was a lot of fun with you guys. Um, not just getting to play some music, but also uh, also digging into Ecclesiastes for the first time. And last week we were, we were handed this we were handed this piece of literary genius by this engaged teacher who didn't cares about us enough not just to want to get through a class with us, but to want us to truly live. Uh, and, and then he pointed at our jobs and our reputations and our bank accounts and even our bodies, and he said, "Right, they are all just a warm breath on a cold morning. You got to know that." Uh, and, uh, and they last about that long, and you can't even grab hold of them, which is quite a rude thing to say when you think about it, a bit confronting. And he says that we don't realise how much of the way we live is as dumb as trying to catch smoke uh, when we work for gain, and that we should instead embrace the present, in both senses of that word present, as God's gift. But we live, eat and breathe gain, don't we? That's our world. Uh, and so we're going to need a journey it's going to take more than that, just a, a single Bible talk to eat, pray, and love into gift. We're going to need a journey with meditation, reflection, and conversation with each other. And tonight, the teacher starts the next phase of the journey. Now, this evening, uh, the teacher actually gets a little bit philosophical. Um, and, and, and so I wanted to place him in the context of where he sits because um, he asks a question that's a classic, classic philosopher's question. Now, this is sort of the, um, the major figures of Western philosophy with Confucius thrown in there, just because, you know, he's uh, kind of influential. Um, so, but to put it in context, the writer to the Ecclesiastes, the works of the teacher are somewhere there. So very precise. <laughs> That's about a 400 at least year gap where it could be. But you do see that this teacher is set, his works are set right at the beginning. Uh, Thales there of Miletus and the other Milesian um, philosophers, they're the earliest human philosophy that we know of. And so it's actually an appropriate sort of bunch of contemporaries for the teacher because tonight he asks the great question, well, one of, but possibly the great question that all the philosophers have asked. What is the good life? What makes a life worth living? Is it, is it that it's an examined life, as Plato might say? There's, there's, there's million answers, but all of the big philosophers had that question in mind, and tonight the teacher has a crack at it. You can see the sort of a nice, amusing picture of all of the philosophers around a table having a discussion. Because we can see here at the start of chapter 2, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 3, we're, gonna, we're picking up all the material. So if, you're, if you've got a Bible there, start of chapter 2 is where we're going to kick off. 2 all the way to verse 3, verse um, 14. Uh, and he tells us what he is about. He begins this experiment, this project. I wanted to see what was good as we live. And he begins this, begins this experiment with a test. In fact, with two tests. It's an ambitious test. And in fact, may I just say, it sounds like a very enjoyable test. Because he says to himself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. What a guy. What a generous guy. This is, this is Jesus, right? You know, going to the cross for us. A tough gig. I'm going to test myself with pleasure to see if that's worth living. You know, I just can't imagine someone being generous enough to do that for me. It's, and he does well. He does well. As we go through, I want you to see just the level 
of pleasure that this guy tested himself with. But before we do that, I do want you to see a couple of things about his experimental method. In verse 1, do you see there, he's not testing pleasure. What's he testing? I said to myself, literally, I said in my heart, I'm going to test you to find out, test you with pleasure to find out what is good. See, last week I told two stories of the same morning, you remember? The same sort of morning, but, but, but experienced very, very differently. One with this mindset of what am I gaining out of this, and another with a mindset of thankfulness about the gifts that were present. And so they're the same events, but experienced very differently. And the teacher here again hints that it's actually the person experiencing the events, not the events alone. It's those two things together that really matter. As he says, I'm going to test you to see what pleasure does. Okay, that's point one. He's testing himself. Secondly, he's smart at being dumb. Do you see there? <laughs> he's fully aware of what he's doing. I'm embracing folly. I'm going to deliberately, wisely be stupid. Right? Do you see this? Is, this is, he knows that this is dumb. See, my wisdom stayed with me, he says. This was not a loss of self-control that he's looking back on later, that, that he stupidly, he had his teenage rebellion period. He's saying, no, I'm doing this, I'm doing this very self-consciously. This is a designed experiment, not quite double-blind, like he's going in with his eyes open. It's not that he didn't just sort of think partway through a drunken bender, oh, managing my mood with alcohol might not be a very good long-term strategy. It's very carefully tested. Uh, and, and in fact, if you think, um, you might be aware of some of the schools of philosophy and one that uh, had currency for quite a while. It's a little bit less popular now, but I think the, 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 the vibe of it certainly is, has travelled through to our current day, that the reason that people have mental health problems is because they feel guilty. And they shouldn't, because there's nothing really that wrong. So you don't feel guilty and you'll be fine. Now, of course... It takes a lot, a lot to not feel guilty, so it's not quite as simple as that. But that was the philosophy underpinning a whole era of psychoanalysis. And so in one sense here, this is what, this is what Solomon, or our Solomon-like figure, is testing out. He embraced folly. I, I, I'm not feeling bad about this. I'm going out there, one night stands. The, the guy had 300 girlfriends, apart from the 700 wives, if we're talking this Solomonic figure that, that the teachers deliberately stuck into our brains with his little hints earlier on. And uh, He's not concerned about them. He's not concerned about anyone else. He is getting all of the goodness for himself and he is embracing the folly. This guy's testing out that psychological theory. If I could just get rid of the guilt and just do whatever I like would all of a sudden the bad go away? Next one. Uh, have I got the verses up for these ones? Yes, here we go. We get to the test itself. Uh, four, verses 4 to 9. And you'll notice this particular test goes from the pub to the museum. It, it goes from the street to the palace. Look at it. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. Earlier, all I was doing was drinking wine. But I'm also high architecture. You see, you see, see how impressive this, this test is. Uh, I made gardens and parks, planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. You're like, oh, 
Okay, right. When you meant testing yourself with pleasure, you don't mean your average Aussie bloke at the footies version of testing myself with pleasure, or, or the guy who's just going to go down to the strip club and thinks that that's pleasure. No, no, you're doing this with refinement, with sophistication. You're, you're not going to make the mistake of just doing pleasure bad. He's doing it in the richest, in the most highbrow, and, and the wine's still there too, in the most refined and pleasurable possible way. I bought male and female slaves, and I had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone else in Jerusalem before me. The riches were all there. You see, this is not any small thing. Now, secondly, in this one, did you notice there that he actually says... Uh, I've held it off because otherwise it spoils the story. But in the next couple of verses, he talks about what was the reward for my labor. So this isn't just I'm sitting around and everyone else is bringing me pleasure and I don't have that extra pleasure of having worked for it. No, he worked for it. There is no aspect of pleasure this guy has missed in this. He has had these great projects. He had to arrange, organize. He had the joy of working hard, of, of pulling it together, of arranging, of creating. Of, and it's not just that he went to a nice hotel and it was a bit vapid. No, no, no. It was the very works of his hands. I saw what I had done. He looked at his own things. Every bit of pleasure, even the most wholesome ones, he made sure he got. Now, um, some of you may have heard of a guy named Andrew Huberman. He's a, uh, a neuroscientist uh, who's uh, a bit popular at the moment. He's sort of one of the one of the people who's sort of you know lectured at Stanford, but then also is good enough with people to also become a very popular YouTube channel. And he gives you all sorts of kind of helpful tips. And one of the things that he he says is you got to be really careful of pleasure that you didn't earn because it messes with you. Just pleasure that doesn't require any effort from you. Pleasure that doesn't... Because it'll mess with your reward system. It messes with how the dopamine within you functions. Now, I don't know if Solomon's got any concept of what <laughs> dopamine is up doing in your brain. But the teacher here, he doesn't miss a trick. He did pleasure in all the ways that you need to do it for it to work. And what was his conclusion? Was that it did not. I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is smoke, hevel, mist. It's like chasing after wind. Why? Why didn't it work? Gee, you did it well. Was it the dopamine balancing wasn't quite right? Was it, was it just that once you start, start sort of... Um, things get better, we all think of our baseline as normal. So someone in Africa who is uh, in a part of Africa that's particularly poor might really sort of come to Brisbane and think, wow, you guys are incredibly rich and, and, and actually have been, but have been quite happy back where he was. But if we sort of go the other direction, maybe we're so used to these things and so used to all of these pleasures that we have so easily that we might not feel the same. It, maybe it's just that that thing. Maybe it's just the balance. And he got up higher and higher and you just, whatever your normal is, that just becomes normal for you. We don't know. And at one level, we'll never know because this is the thing. Yes, we live in a rich part of the world, but you will never know what it was like to be as rich as Solomon. And you will never know what it's like to have been this good at pleasing yourself. 
And so the reason why you read wisdom literature is not because you're like, oh, yeah, I get that. I already knew that. It's so that you can listen to someone who's smarter than you, who's done more experiments than you, and just listen and believe, oh, yeah, okay, he's already tried that. It didn't work, even if we don't know exactly why. He says, it's all smoke. There is nothing that you can gain. Now, as he's doing this test, it's worth noting that that is the criteria. Do you see what that's what his measure is? What was gained? What was gained? He's, he's in that mode when he's doing these tests. The measure of what is good is whether I gain anything, whether actually in the end I can see that I've moved the needle, I've put a dint in the world, I've changed things so that it, I'm better off than I was before. And he's, we'll see that as we go through the test. He's in gain mode before we switch. So from folly, from embracing hedonism, but smart hedonism, it's very sort of, uh, um, uh, what's the, what are the, what are those, era, era, what are the, that philosophy in the early couple of centuries before Jesus, what is it, the hedonistic one, you know the one, that, uh, anyway, it's in my tongue. It's very them, very smart hedonism, uh, their, their principle is seek pleasure to the point of pain, but no further. Um, now from there, he switches now his teacher switches and he says, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move from folly and whatever I want I get to every ounce of skill and self-discipline that I have. I'm going to test wisdom. I'm going to test wisdom. Now, have I got the, got the wisdom bit? Oh, I haven't got that one up there. And so we, we'll, we'll skip through it because we do have a lot to get through. Um, and, and he ends up testing wisdom to see whether it's better. And, and in the end, actually, no, wisdom does come out on top. Wisdom, and you think, well, hold on, he actually did the pleasure thing really wisely. But, but, but instead, he says, no, 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 living differently, living not just to please my every whim, but actually to build up things for the future. The, um, that idea of uh, a delayed gratification, of setting things up for the future. I'm going to be wise. I'm going to be disciplined. Well, it's better. It's better. You're using insight. You know how it's going to turn out. You know that after the, after the wine, there's going to be the hangover, and so it's smarter. And so he says, oh, just, we, I did everything in Proverbs. I, 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 I followed all the self-help videos on the internet. Every life hack that works, I did it. And it does help in achieving things. It does. But then he takes a step back. And he looks at both sides. And he says, oh, hold on. The foolish guy who lived like that, he's going to die. And the wise guy lived like this. He's going to die. They both die. So what's gained? There's no gain. There's no gain. I've got to leave it behind. Once I die, I can't take things with me. There's no gain. And so it, he hates everything. So this is the thing. So first of all, he hates the things that he worked for there. You see that in the second paragraph? I hated the things that I worked for because I can't take them with me. There's nothing to gain there. Second of all, verse 20, I, I, I hated the work itself. It's not, just, it's not just the things that I got out of it and, that, and made me hate it, even though, hold on, they were the good things that I was enjoying before. But now, when I got the wisdom to look back and see that they don't gain me anything, then I hated the things that I used to like. 
And then I hated the work that I had to do to get them because someone who didn't work for it will get it and they don't deserve it. And that, and that thought just soured the whole thing for him, so he didn't even enjoy work anymore. And then verses 22 to 23, he just got, he, he hated the stress of every day, the, the, the worry of achieving, the next thing I've got to get to, the next milestone, that, that sense of gain, and I've got to make some, I've got to make some gain, I've got to make some gain. The stress of it all. You see, even wisdom... Even successful living, he says, mate, once you step back and realize there's no gain from it, it's, you realize it's smoke. It's smoke. You can be very successful at living, and that doesn't help you. You don't get anywhere from it. And it's hard to understand why it's like that when you're in gain mode, because you're just in this frustrated rut, and you don't even know why you're frustrated. And yet, in this, um, in this cheeky little bit at the end there, sort of always wanting to go one level of meta further than, than what you have, he says, oh, yeah, but even the anxiety, well, that's just smoke too. You can't even grasp and understand the anxiety. This too is smoke. You can't grip it and understand it. You can't understand exactly why. You can't even get it. And you can't control it. It's just going to go away because you're going to die one day. You see, he just steps back and says, well, what about, yeah, yeah, but what does that achieve? And steps back, well, yeah, but what does that achieve? Steps back, well, yeah, but what does that achieve? Until he comes to the end of the possibilities of the gain mentality. And he comes to probably the most poignant turning point. Well, one of the, this has got to be one of the most poignant turning points in all literature. Verse 24 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. There's nothing else to do. I've tried pleasure and vice on one hand. I've tried extreme wisdom and personal discipline on the other. Neither produces gain, says the teacher. So the only way to live is to give up on gain. Enjoy the moment. Then go home and enjoy that moment. Then put your head on your pillow and enjoy that moment, etc., etc. Now, the teacher is always, again, like I said, one level meta, of always one level up from, from what we always do. He's cottoned on because he said, actually, you just be careful of this. I've just given you a philosophy, but just be careful even with that. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? That classic American doctrine of rights. You've got the right to chase happiness, but happiness is wind. Happiness is hevel smoke, so don't chase it. You look like an idiot when you're chasing wind. You never catch it. So there's nothing better that you can do than eat, drink, and take satisfaction in your work. But if you are living in order for the satisfaction that you're going to achieve out of eating, drinking, and, 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 uh, and the work that you're doing, then you will not be able to grasp that either. And it will slip through your fingers and you won't even get that happiness. You see, this too, he says, I see, it's from the hand of God. You see, you can't just sit there and say, oh, I'm going to receive life as a gift and then grasp at the gift. It doesn't work that way. You can't grab smoke without it slipping through your fingers. If anyone likes Star Wars, as Princess Leia wisely said, the more, star more, more closely you tighten your grip, the more star systems will slip through your fingers, Lord Vader. This is how it works. You've got to keep the hand open. Just receive what's there. And when the wind blows it away, don't chase the wind. Let it go. Because this too will be a gift from God. That it is gone. God will give you 
what he gives you. It's it's, it's this realisation that sparks a poem, a poem about the seasons of life, the realities that we face. Thanks, Ben, for reading it. We're going to read it again here. You see, there is a time for everything. Season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die. Time to plant, time to uproot, to, to harvest. Time to kill, a time to heal. Time to tear down, a time to build. Time to weep and a time to laugh. Time to mourn and a time to dance. Time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. Time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Time to search and a time to give up. Time to keep and a time to give away. Time to tear and a time to mend. Time to be silent and a time to speak. And a time to love and a time to hate and a time for war even. And a time for peace. Now, does that remind you of anything? Does it remind you of earlier in Ecclesiastes? In chapter 1, we, we had those rhythms, didn't we? The rhythms of the earth. And yet here, this, this one starts off in a similar way. starts off with the, the, the rhythms of being born and then dying, planting and then harvesting. And, but then it, it moves into other things which have their own sort of rhythm, but, well, it's more conceptual. It's more the ups and downs of life. It's not just the rhythms of the physical but the things that matter to people and to communities and hearts. You see, God says here, there is a time to take up arms against injustice when there are vulnerable people who are hurting, a time to put yourself in the way of danger. There's a time to patch up the wounded and to walk through rehab at their side, both sides. Now, one of the things that this, this poem sort of does for us, if, if we stopped and considered this as a, as a question about time, is actually, should we be using time as a quantity or as a quality? Uh, clocks are a funny thing, how they've changed our world, right? We think now in terms of minutes. And in fact, it was interesting, as clocks got better, they, in fact, some, apparently some of the early clocks, they only had the hour's hand. Then we added the minutes hand, and then our gears and stuff all got better and more efficient. It was easier to do it in mass production. When we got the seconds hand, right? And every second's accounted for. It's changed how we use time. Other cultures, other than the Western ones, some of them still use time as a quality rather than a quantity. And think of their times like that. So uh, in Indonesia, for example, uh, they, pe- people, people will... like like. Who here knows exactly what percentage of their favourite podcast they can fit in on their commute to and from work or uni? Right? I know it's a, you know, is this, yeah, yeah, some of us know. You, you know exactly, okay, that, this, this is the long podcast. Okay, this is my podcast for this because it fits in the time and I'm, and I, and I'm doing things. I'm being productive while I'm travelling. In Indonesia, you don't, you don't, you don't do anything while you're travelling because you're travelling. That's what you're doing. It's a time for travelling. And so you travel. And I'm not necessarily saying that that's, it's wrong to listen to a podcast while you're going for a walk or whatever. But there's this, there's this sense of a different way of thinking about time. Uh, in, in, uh, in Samoa, uh, if you are five, if you, in, in, in Hobart, if you're five minutes late, you're probably okay. In, in Brisbane, if you're Brisbane, particularly if you're 15 minutes late, you know, someone's allowed to be quite cross at you. In Samara, if you're two hours late, you're fine. 
It's a different, different way of thinking about things. It's a different way of doing things. I remember once uh, my, uh, my ex-girlfriend, uh, maybe there's maybe a reason why she was ex-girlfriend, um, told me that if someone is uh, 30 minutes late, then they're not worth waiting for. And that was bad because <laughs> uh, punctuality is not my strong point. Uh, so I got a little worried when she said that. But, but this, this, hearing this poem is deeply cross-cultural for us. It's in times and seasons. And maybe we need to give ourselves a little bit more latitude in times and seasons. If you have people around, maybe that's a full day thing. Today I'm having people around for lunch because I've got to get ready in the morning. I've got to clean up afterwards. I've got to talk to the kids about what's going on with it. There's lots of bits and pieces that need doing. Maybe time is better thought of as a quality. I've, I've even been thinking just this week, actually, that as I think of my time as a quality, rather than counting down the minutes and thinking, what can I fit into these minutes for gain, that I'm actually less distracted in that time. Because this time is a, a time for a thing. And I'm not just accounting for and freaking out about the minutes that are causing more anxiety for me. Anyway, moving on, moving on. This is all hard, says the teacher. This is all hard. Verses, uh, three, chapter 3, verses uh, 9 to uh, 14, if you're following along. Because we would li- it, to be like this sounds very beautiful. It sounds very relaxed. It sounds very mindful and zen and just chilled out. But we're not like this, are we? We're not just rhythmic. And, and this verse kind of, kind of uh, helps us to see this. Because we're not just happy to be completely ignorant of the future. God has set eternity in our hearts. We just did two weeks on guidance because we're desperate to know the future, because the end point of everything matters. We want to know what God's working towards. We want things to be better for our children than they were for us. We want to know the end of the story. And God says, no. I'm not going to tell you. He makes everything beautiful in its time. And sure, he's also said eternity in the human heart. But no one can fathom what he's done from beginning to end. No one can see the big picture. We can't, we can't and the, the teacher can't, meta enough, step back, take enough steps back enough to see really what the, the whole thing looks like from beginning to end. And that is so frustrating. Because I want to. I'm not satisfied in living in the cycles. And actually, God says here, that's from me, that frustration. I've said it in your hearts, and yet you won't be able to see what I'm up to. Why on earth would God do that? Now, I don't think I put the verse in here. I'm so sorry about that. Um, it is in chapter three, in the next couple of verses after that. So it'll be in chapter. It'll verse about uh, about first, It'll be verse fourteen. But God's reason is, and says, He does it so that men will fear Him. I'm assuming women as well. So you'll fear Him. That's what God is telling you right now. The reason that is like that is because he wants you to respect him. See, when you receive a time, when you receive a moment, it comes so that you might fear God. You don't know what's going to happen next so that you will know that you're not God and he is. And you desperately want to know what happens next and yet know that you can't know it so that you will fear the God who does and respect him rather than assuming your mastery over the universe, assuming that you that you can know 
See, our desire to know and yet have limits that frustrate us are designed for us to fear our God. So what do we do? What is the good life? What has the teacher taught us? Well, kind of what we've observed already, that good living is as much about how we experience what we're doing as it is what we're doing. Quality of life is about how we face things as much as the circumstances with which we face them. So how are we going to face it? I've got three things for us tonight. Well, the teacher has. Live in the moment, not in the minute. I think there's room to change our thinking in terms of the quality of time rather than the amount of time. Sure, we've got to navigate the world and other people are going to have standards for the minutes that you take and all that sort of stuff, but if the result for us of stopping and taking time as a moment and a season that requires a certain kind of involvement from us, a certain kind of attention and presentness, and stopping counting the minutes, but being there for the moment, then perhaps we'll actually be more present for each of the moments. And I wonder if this may not be, in a weird way in the end, more efficient than if we are constantly worrying about the efficiency. So live in the moment, don't be counting the minutes. Secondly, receiving the times. You see, God says there is a time for everything, and I don't like that. There's things in that poem that don't gel with my heart. War for one. And yet God says here, respect the rhythms. There's some surprising things in the poem that are uncomfortable, but there's a time when someone needs a hug when they are the last person that you want to hug and you desperately don't want to be the one to give it to them. And there is a time when you want more than anything to just just embrace someone Show them that you care, and yet it's not the time for that. That would actually hurt. That would actually be a really bad idea. And it is heartbreaking. I wonder if you've ever found yourself saying something like, man, who'd have thought I'd end up in this position, in this job, or not having this job that I thought I would at this age? In this relationship, who would have thought? That's not what I pictured for myself. Or who would have thought I'm not in this relationship that I want? and yet having a duty to live in that season. A peace-loving nation who finds itself having to prepare for war. A shepherd taking a knife to the unwell animal that he's just desperately nursed back to health not a few weeks before that. Maybe, Maybe you found yourself in a time of conflict in relationships. You hate conflict. And yet it might be the season. And you don't even know. You don't even have that, oh, look, we're going through some conflict, but I know it'll turn out for the best. It's going to, you know, we're going to talk and talk things out and everything will be much more peaceful and better even afterwards. You don't even know that. But this is the season that you've found yourself in. See, what situation in your life do you refuse to allow there to be a legitimate time for? What do you refuse to allow that might be possible, that God would have had for you? What part of your life are you like, I just don't, this should never have been, this was not the plan. And so you don't embrace the season, you reject it. Do you think that there's never a time for you to weep? You don't want to. Well, there is time for that. I'm not telling you it's right now. The Holy Spirit is going to work, work in you in His timing and we don't know what that is. That's the point. But there is a time to feel sadness, to cry. 
there's also times to suck it up. Push on through. Even though you don't feel like you can, even though you feel like it's beyond your strength, I can't do it. There's moments to suck it up and keep going. Now, please hear me. I'm not talking about an abusive situation when I say that. Far from it. If you find yourself vulnerable in an abusive situation, that would be a season to call for help and then with that help, safely run. See, th- these are hard to discern wisely and, 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 and the teacher is not trying to help us do that, but just to say that there might be things that you've received from God that you don't like that you've received from God. And yet receive the season. I mean, isn't that where sin lurks? Do you, do you remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel, first two brothers, Adam and Eve's boys. Um, they, they uh, you know, as brothers, maybe a little competitive, who knows, Cain and Abel. Uh, and, and Abel goes to God and offers a sacrifice, and God honors his sacrifice and receives it. Cain, same thing, offers his sacrifice and doesn't. Now, what God gave Cain then in the moment was a moment to actually be rebuffed and to have to learn and grow from that. As God said to him, to control his desire, to control this desire that wants to have him, but actually you must rule over it. And Cain couldn't do it. He couldn't receive that season from God. And you think, hold on, rejection from God, that's not a good thing to just accept and be happy about. I'm not saying that, but Cain couldn't receive the season and the implications that it had, which was don't fight against it, actually, but to receive it and learn from it and grow through it. And so beautiful Abel, whose name is the same word as smoke, Havel, Abel, A-B-H-A-B-E-L, Abel, Havel. It's exactly the same word here as for everything is smoke. Everything is Abel, who's here today and then gone tomorrow when his brother murdered him because his brother could not receive the rebuke of God, couldn't receive that hard season. Later on in Genesis, Joseph his brothers sell him into slavery. And we don't know exactly if he beautifully, you know, in every, in every way received the season from God in, in good, good grace. And yet through it, through him continuing to trust God, he didn't reject God. He didn't curse God and die. He kept on trusting God. And through that, he actually saved the world. In fact, he gave the world seven seasons of plenty as he, as he stored up the food for the Egyptian famine. And of course, Jesus Christ received from his father the season of being on this earth, being rejected and being killed by those who he loved. We trust our God, fear him, and receive from his hand what he gives us. This is the lesson of the teacher, to receive life as a gift. And I think the last very small thing is that as we do that, then we will actually find the beauty that otherwise we would not be able to see. We will actually make, start to make each time that we have that little bit more beautiful. That as God makes everything beautiful in its time, we as we go with what he gives us, will find and then create for others more beauty. There is, there is something quite wonderful about someone who is sad and who lets themselves be sad with you. And it creates a little moment of beauty that otherwise would not be there because the person received the season. Live in the moment, not the minute. Receive the times and find the beauty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the goodness of the teacher's wisdom. 
And Father, we pray that as we receive from you the things that you have for us, that we know will turn out for good, that we know if we had your eyes view, we'd be able to say, oh, wow, that is kindness from God. And yet in our gut, we certainly don't feel it, and it doesn't look like that to us one bit at all. And Lord, for those of us who are in the great times and you're not feeling that they're from you, Father, help us to fear you, to know that it's not our closing of our hand on those great times that keeps them going, but our leaving the hand open, thankfully receiving from you what you offer, and knowing that in your time you may take it away. And yet as we have it, Father, praising you for the good thing that you've given us. Father, please build this wisdom into our hearts as we seek to honour Jesus, the one who died to save us, who accepted the season of death from you to bring about the eternity of life. We ask it in his name. Amen.